us. So the reading is from Acts 6, 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a, con a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thanks be to God. Thank you, my honey. come before your word, your spirit would break out, would break out into our hearts and minds, Lord, that your spirit would have freedom to continue to transform us, to transform us as a church community, Lord, that we might grow as spirit-filled people and to transform us individually. So, Lord, would you anoint me to teach and pray and anoint each of us to hear and receive and walk in joyful obedience to your word for Jesus' glory. Amen. Just want to make two comments before we begin. Um, Andy, thank you for that wonderful time of worship. And as you were encouraging us to pray, spirit break out into different areas, into our communities, into different areas of our lives. Can I encourage you to be praying that for um, this afternoon for Bishop Stephen Lake, who is being inaugurated as our new Bishop of Salisbury at three o'clock. Please be praying for that. It does seem to be an appointment for such a time as this. So really be praying for Stephen, praying for his wife, Carol, and their family. Thank you for that. And I just want also to say, can I say it's such a wonderful privilege that we have a number of Ukrainian friends here. Um, can we give, you, give them a big clap and just say, you know. You are so welcome and thank you for blessing us with your presence. Um, and we're trying not to speak too fast. I know some of you have very good English, and, um, but we we do our best not to speak too fast. But it's, it's so wonderful to have you here. Um, so we're continuing our series on growing a spirit-filled people. We're journeying through Acts. And um, we're thinking about callings today. 
And this, uh, this, is, this is quite a kind of seminal moment for the early church as we, as we reach Acts chapter 6. If you've got Bibles near you, I do encourage you to open them. You might have them on your phone. There are some of the church Bibles near the pillars. Again, do grab one because it, it's helpful for us to be tracking this together. And um, it's interesting. I, as we journey through Acts, I think that there can be a danger that, that we idealize the early church, that we look at the early church, and particularly we take a passage like Acts 2, 42 to 47. Uh, it's a really important passage, but we take it a bit out of context, and we think, what a perfect church community. How amazing. They didn't have any problems. They didn't have any issues. You know, all the life groups got on so, so well. And, you know, there was no competition. There were no jealousies. There was no insecurities. But the reality is, and I love the fact the Bible is just so honest. The reality is the early church was just like us. Full of human frailties. Full of human dynamics. And we see some of these dynamics beginning to surface in in this passage, at this point in the early church's life. So Acts, Acts 6 is, is really important for us in, in terms of our understanding of that. And we see a problem beginning, we see a problem emerging. If we can have the next slide up, please, Noah. And um, if you've ever been in, in church leadership, you'll be aware complaining can occasionally happen. Um, and there was a very justified complaint that was brought to the, 12 apostle, to the 12 apostles. And if we can have the next slide up, please, Noah. The complaint came from the Hellenistic Jews. And in the early church, in very crude terms, there were kind of two groups of people. There were Hellenistic Jews, and they were Greek-speaking Jews. And there were Hebraic Jews who were Aramaic-speaking. And the 12 apostles were Aramaic-speaking. And the complaint came from the Greek-speaking Jews. And, and their complaint was a very justified one. What they were complaining about was that they felt that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And there's, there's no hint here that they're saying, we always thought you favored the Hebraic Jews. But Luke uses, the term Luke uses for complaining here is actually very similar to the term that's used both in Exodus and Numbers for murmurings amongst the Israelites. So Luke is suggesting actually this had the potential to lead somewhere very unhealthy. This, this problem is brought to the apostles. And... Um, as I said, there's no suggestion that there was any deliberate discrimination going on. But it, it looks as though the apostles had reached a point where they were overextended. You know, we read that the church, that disciples were increasing in number, continued to increase in number. And even two chapters before, we hear that um, the congregation had, had grown to more than 5,000. 
So they were dealing with a situation where there were increasing numbers, and yet they hadn't adjusted their structures to respond to that. And I think the response of the apostles is really instructive for us. Because the if we can have the next slide up, please, Noah. The apostles say, they gather, they gather together all the disciples, and the apostles say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Now, as we read what they're saying, we, mustn't, we, we must be careful we don't misunderstand it. The apostles aren't saying, actually, the ministry of the tables is below us. We're far too important for that. Other people can do it. What actually they're doing, and I think it's a mark of humility, they're actually saying, God has given us a specific calling. And in humility and with clarity, we want to hold on to that calling. It's the ministry of the word and it's prayer. It's to provide the spiritual oversight. And actually, if we get drawn into this area of ministry, we're not going to be walking in alignment with God's calling on us in this season. And their humility and their clarity in responding in that way, as we will see, released callings in other people. And I think it's interesting. I, you know, in leadership, whether that's you know, in a, a workplace or in a, a church context, at whatever level, there's a danger when complaints are brought, brought to you that you can respond in unhelpful ways. And it's easy, especially if you're really tired or especially particularly straight, it's easy to be defensive and kind of think, you know, don't you realize all that we've got going on? And um, we don't see the apostles responding like that. We also don't see them exhibiting perfectionism, which can kind of say, well, do you know, we don't want to allow anyone else to do this because actually we're really good at this distribution of food. We know you wouldn't do it quite as well as we could. So, but we see the apostles displaying humility and clarity. And, um, and as I said, and in, in, in turn, that releases other callings. Now, there are seasons where in a position of leadership, you can feel jostled one way and another, pulled in different directions with different demands. So I was driving to a meeting in, near Dorchester on Thursday with another church leader, and he was saying, Andy, I feel as I've got demands coming at me from four different directions at the moment. He said, how do you try and navigate that? And I, I remember about seven years ago when Fee and I uh, were still co-leading one of the um, conference, holiday conference weeks at New Wine. Um, the lead-up to that particular year was especially stretching. And I had a dream one night and not all our dreams are from the Lord. We know they can be as a result of cheese or red wine or other things going on. But this one felt particularly from the Lord. And it, it was a dream that I was playing rugby again. And I was back at school. And my rugby coach was on the sideline. And he kept shouting at me, Andy, hold your position. Hold your position. Don't just follow the ball. Hold your position. 
And, and I think the Lord is amazing. He knows what will catch our attention, doesn't he? And for someone else, he might have given them a, a very different dream, a very different picture. But that caught my, that caught my attention. And I was reminded, the Lord was saying, hold on to your primary callings in this season. Hold on to it. But the apostles needed to be clear-minded about that. They needed to stay soft-hearted so they could really serve the people and clear-minded so they were really clear about what their particular calling was. And in this time of change, in this time of exponential growth, they began to understand they needed to make some changes. Some of you will be aware of the Three Horizons framework. We can have that slide up, please, Noah. Um, it's, there are so many different business models for how you begin to uh, bring structural change um, at times of transition. This is one very simple one, and it, oh, we can't go into it too much today. But the red line, the top line, is business as usual. And you'll see that that line tracks downwards. And it actually depicts the fact that at, at, at certain points when there's a lot of change going on, or perhaps there might be, it might be in a season of significant growth in a company, if you just operate with a model that's business as usual, you're going to become less effective. Um, but if you can begin to discern what the emerging future is, which is the um, green line, you can begin to see the changes that can be made. And the apostles, um, without having studied economics or whatever, you know, business management or anything like that, with wisdom and being spirit-filled, they discern changes need to be made. And so what they do is they delegate, as we read in verses 3 to 4. We can have those slides up, please, Noah. Brothers and sisters, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And we need to understand that in doing this, they were saying, we think you will know people around you better than we know them and we trust your judgment. And notice, um, notice too that they had, to, that they had, um, they set the bar high in terms of the caliber of the people they wanted. Seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. They're not just saying we want the first seven hands that go up, but they're actually saying this is a really significant ministry. We want people who are going to be well fitting. And over the years, you know, that's been our heart at SML, to try and release right people in, into the right areas of gifting. And, you know, we pray that that will continue to be our aim. But they needed to take a risk, if we can see with the next slide, please, Noah. Because actually, first of all, they handed the process over to the wider group of disciples. And then if you look at the seven names of the people they chose, all of those names represent people who are probably 
Greek-speaking Jews, not Aramaic-speaking Jews. So part of the group that had complained. So there's no defensiveness in the apostles' appointment of this people, the, these people. They're actually saying, we trust you. We trust you will be really well-fitting for this. And so they laid their hands on them and prayed for them. And what's the result of this change in organizational structure? What's the result of releasing more people into their callings? We see fruit, don't we? We can have the next slide up, please, Noah. Fruit, the flourishing of the gospel. So the word of God spread. I think Luke writes that very deliberately. So, there's a causal connection there. As a result of the changes they've made, the Spirit is, is released to work even more powerfully. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Some people would say, Lord, more of that in the Church of England as well. But we see that incredible flourishing of the gospel, which is amazing as people are released into their callings. And I want to ask you a question that I, I pray you might journey with over this summer. What's your calling in this season? What is your calling in this season? I mean, in a sense, I would quite like to rephrase that slightly from when I asked Will to do this PowerPoint. What are your callings in this season? Because we all have a wider calling in our life. And that might embrace your career. But we also all have a calling within our church communities. And that can vary from season to season. So what are your callings in this season? And we want to pick up with that in September because, you know, we long to see more and more flourishing of the gospel. We long to see more and more kingdom growth. We long to see the number of disciples rapidly increasing. And that will happen more and more as all, you know, each of us find our callings in this season within the church community. But you'll be carrying, you'll be signs of the kingdom in your workplaces as well. You need to be listening to the Lord. What's my calling in this season? In the social, social context you place me. What is your calling this season? And then, this is Father's Day. And I just want to say, just in, in closing, a few words to fathers here, to dads. And um, it might be that you're a spiritual father rather than, as it were, um, a father who, who has... Um, active, um, as it were, responsibility for children or, or for grandchildren or for great-grandchildren. Because the calling to be a dad mustn't be eclipsed by your calling in your career. It mustn't be eclipsed by the area in which you serve in the church. Your calling as a spouse and as a dad is so important in the Lord's eyes. And um, as you leave, men, you'll be offered one of these um, 
Christian magazine sort it. It's got a, a picture of Mark Wahlberg on the front. So husbands, if you don't pick it up, your wives will. <laughs> so make sure, make sure you grab it first. And it's interesting. You'll discover a little bit about Mark's... Um, as, as if I'm a good friend with him. Mark, <laughs> you'll discover a little bit of, more about Mark Wahlberg's own story. He's a committed Christian. He's actually a devout Catholic. He goes to church every day. And he would say his greatest mission in life is to support his family. He's got four children. Um, some great stuff there. But dads, for our calling, I want to give us three encouragements on this Father's Day that, that we might pursue our callings as dads as, uh, with all that we've got. And the first is this. And it sounds really simple. Dads love deeply. Love deeply. That's your first calling as a dad. And I know as I look out, some of you are amazing dads. Some of you are amazing grandfathers and great-grandfathers. And we all need to be reminded that love is at the heart of what we're called to, time and time again. I love, I love 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. So one translation has it, simply because you are my child and I am your father. And our children need to know they are loved simply because they are our children and we are their fathers. And... Um, you know, I know in the past it hasn't been very English to tell our children we love them. Let's be biblical and not English. You know, let's, don't let them guess. Just remind them, remind them, remind them how much you love them. Whatever season of life they're in, you might have children who are in their 60s now. They still need to be told you, lo you love them. And, um, and in terms of loving them deeply, can I encourage us as dads, let's try to listen, not just to their words, but to their hearts. Listen to their hearts. That takes time. And it takes time when we're juggling lots of things. But you can't, you can't use time any more effectively than that. Listen to their hearts. First encouragement. Second encouragement. Aim to be a godly role model. Right into the church in Ephesus, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Wow, he sets the bar high, doesn't he? Really high. And we know as husbands, Lord, help me. No, no. I, uh, <laughs> can I say, I love my scrummy, scrummy honey so much. But we all need to. No, we all... Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. No, no, I'm not going to get myself in trouble. But basically, kind of, you know, we're human. And we, we always need the Lord to increase our love, don't we? Michael Casti, a great Christian leader, once said, the greatest thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Uh, and I know sometimes there are fractures. I'm very aware of that. And the Lord, you know... Bless you if you're in that place at the moment. But, um, you know, give ourselves to being a godly role model by loving our wives. Secondly, being a role model, how often do your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, how often do they see you reading your Bible and praying? 
Just ask yourself that. You might think, well, do you know, I do that privately. And, and, but actually, don't be too private about it. Let them see you reading your Bible and praying. And when, you, when they talk to you about their problems, very naturally, and, and please not intensely at all, but very naturally, try and turn that over to prayer with them. Just naturally. And in terms of being a godly role model as well, C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And if we're going to be godly role models, we need to laugh more with our children, to laugh with our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. So dads, part of your calling is to aim to be a godly role model. And then thirdly, third encouragement, do all you can to champion and bless them. And I would say, particularly in this season, you know, ch- some of children, teenagers, early 20s day, these are difficult days to navigate those years. There's more anxiety because of the lockdowns. And um, there's, uh, it's not easy getting uni places. And there's much less certainty. There's much more fluidity in the workplace. And our children, our young people, need us to be championing them more than ever before. And to pray blessing over them. Some point this week, I encourage you to read Genesis 49, where you see Jacob praying blessing over his 12 sons. And I know that might feel a bit paternalistic today, Think about how you can bless your children in the best way. As spirit-filled people, we're, giving, we're given callings. Dads, let's go for it. Let's cheer each other on as we pursue that calling as well. And then as Mark's going to lead us into communion now. And as we come forward to receive communion, I just, just want to encourage you, be asking that, the question that we had up earlier. If we can have the next slide, please, Noah. In this season, Lord, what are your callings? What are your primary callings on my life? And I don't want you just to think, hey, there's lots of need there or there's gaps there. But Lord, what are your primary callings on my life in this season? Amen.